You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 83. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about Nubia. It's a real place. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute Peoples Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. And today we have Dr. Shayla Monroe and Deborah Hurd on the show. Dr. Shayla Monroe is an assistant professor of anthropology at Harvard University. She is an anthropological archaeologist studying the long-term relationship between people, animals, and climate in Northeastern and Sahelian Africa, and currently investigates how ancient peoples navigated changing weather patterns in the long term. Since 2013, she has worked as an archaeologist at the Third Cataract of the Nile River in Sudan, first at the Egyptian colonial site at Tombos, and then at the Kerma hinterland site Abu Fatima, also in northern Sudan. Monroe began her career at Howard University, where she earned degrees in anthropology and English. She also spent two seasons working at Lermitage Plantation with the National Park Service in Frederick, Maryland. So welcome to the show, Shayla. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. And we also have Deborah Hurd. Deborah Hurd is a PhD candidate in anthropology specializing in the archaeology, history, and language of ancient Nubia and Egypt at the University of Chicago. Her dissertation compares inscriptions and iconography of Upper Nubian temples dedicated to the gods Amun and Apetimac. A member of several archaeological and ancient studies organizations, she is the organizer and a founding member of the William Leo Hansberry Society, which is committed to providing African-descended people with access, opportunity, and professional training for careers in the fields of ancient Nile Valley and Northeast African studies. So welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you, Jessica. All right. Well, I am super excited to have you both on and to talk more about Nubia, which, as we, we discussed before we came on the air, it's a real place. <laughs> so first, let's let's talk about what got you into this this kind of work in general. Like what maybe I don't know. I mean, in this case, usually it's like people are interested in archaeology first or they're interested in, you know, Pompeii or whatever. So I don't know if you got into like the Nile area first or you got into archaeology first, but basically what what got you into whichever one came first? Well, can I say ass backwards? I, I, I normally... <laughs> you can say whatever you want. <laughs> okay. I normally tell people I feel ass backwards in the archaeology. I was a, in an anthropology program a four fields anthropology program. And I wanted to be a linguist Hmm. and I was really interested in historical linguistics. And I was interested in a script called the Meroitic script. So the alphabet of the Nubian kingdom of Meroe is one of the oldest alphabets on the African continent. And they have a language in the script has only been partially translated. So I was really all about that mystery, this mysterious language Wait, wait, wait. How'd you even hear about this language, though? Oh, in class at Howard. Oh, okay. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) And so in our program, we had to do an internship in order to graduate. Mm -hmm. And the linguistics internships were so competitive, I couldn't get into any linguistics internships. And I was running out of time. So the Park Service was heavily recruiting archaeological interns. So I ended up taking an archaeology internship with the Park Service just to fulfill my requirement. And I was so mad because (laughs) I, as I, and I've said this before, I thought like, oh my God, it's going to be hot and stanky and dirty and there's going to be bugs out there. And I just thought I was going to have this terrible experience, but I ended up falling in love with archaeology And so I still wanted to study ancient Sudan, but I pivoted and I wanted to study it from an archaeological perspective rather than doing historical linguistic reconstructions. And so I ended up going to graduate school for that purpose. And here I am. So, okay, I mean, it's kind of funny because Deborah, you you are more focused on on language now. But Shayla, like, so how come, you know, obviously, like in that region, you could have easily done both. How come you switched your interest? 
Well, okay. So there were different languages. The Meroitic language at the time, there were really only like two or three linguists studying it. And one was in Germany mm-hmm. and the other one was in France. So it it really is something that needs, that particular language is something that needs a, a specialized training. Mm-hmm. And okay. well, I also, I fell in love with archaeology. So mm-hmm. it really seduced me. I got bitten by that bug. And so that's the other reason why I decided to study Nubia from the archaeological perspective, and I ended up not even working in the Meroitic time period. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then, but like, what got you into more of the like Zoark? Is that how you say it? Zoark, right? So there are several different pronunciations. Okay. I say zooarchaeology. Some people say zoo. Mm-hmm. It really depends on who trained you. Okay. But I originally, before I wanted to be an anthropologist, I originally went to school to be a zoologist. I wanted to study living animals. So that part just kind of came around full circle. And I ended up studying dead animals instead of living ones (laughs) in the context of, you know, human, human settlements and, and, um, ancient economies. Okay. All right. So let's go back to the language part. And I'll ask Deborah, I'll ask you the same question. What got you into, I don't know, which came first for you? Was it, was it archaeology or Nubia or? So let me do a little bit of correction. So actually I do archaeology and language. So Ah. I'm not just focused on language, but so I I had to laugh at, at Shayla because her route was a lot more straightforward than mine. So (laughs) mine, I call a circuitous route. So my undergraduate degree is in political science. And so I attended Tennessee State University, which is a HBCU. Howard has one, well, it had, no longer has, a distinction of being one of the few HBCUs that actually had anthropology. Mm. I never had an anthropology class until I started graduate school. But I, I did use my political science degree to go to law school. And, oh, wow. uh, <laughs> and I graduated from law school and I practiced law for a few years. And I decided that law was not my, my lifelong obsession, career obsession, that I would not be doing that for many years to come. But while I was in law school, I discovered that Temple University was starting the first PhD program in African-American studies. So I left the practice of law to go back to grad school and I finished the master's in African-American studies and I decided that I was going to do a second master's in anthropology. So I started studying anthropology and ended up just staying in the, in anthropology, but I had to decide, you know, what did I want to study? Uh, Because again, this is my first opportunity to take any courses in anthropology And I decided that I wanted to do archaeology because I didn't see people that looked like me doing archaeology in Africa. And so then I left Temple to go to the University of Chicago. And when I first got there, I did not know exactly where in Africa I wanted to to work. But while I was there, I decided that I wanted to take a few classes in Egyptology. So I was taking the first year classes in Middle Egyptian. And we were translating texts. We first started translating texts. And that's the first time I'd heard about the Nubians. And I was like, who are these Nubians? And then I found out that they actually ruled Egypt. And I was like, wait, why don't I know this? This is going to be my research area because I don't know this. And there are a lot of people that don't know this. So at the time, you know, there was nobody teaching Nubia at the University of Chicago. We had one person there, Bruce Williams, who's a very noted figure in in Nubian studies, but he wasn't teaching. So I ended up taking classes in Egyptology, but I'm also in the anthropology department. So I'm straddling two departments, but every class that I'm taking, I'm using as an opportunity to learn something about Nubia. So because I was going back and forth between the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures, which is where Egyptology is located, I got to start working with people that were in the museum. And that got me to be a research. I was able to become a research associate when the 
Oriole Institute, which is now the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures, reinstalled its Nubian Gallery. So I got to be a research assistant for that. And then the next year, the Oriole Institute sponsored an excavation to the Fourth Cataract in Sudan. That was 2007. So I got to participate at an excavation in Sudan, 2007 and 2008. So that's kind of where I've, I've, my trajectory kind of started. When the museum opened, I got to do a presentation on the Nubian Queens. Mm-hmm. And that was something that, you know, was very kind of new, well, not new, but novel in Chicago. So it, it hit a lot of diverse communities in Chicago. So we were able to, to really do a lot of work in Nubia in Chicago, but, you know, it was pre-YouTube. So a lot, of the, a lot of the things that were being done in Chicago was just, it was localized in the area of Chicago. Whereas, you know, now really with the pandemic, that allowed Nubia to just kind of like be exposed to this global audience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's, in a nutshell, that's how I got started working in, in Sudan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, a little bit of how you got an intro to some of these different fields that all tie into to your current work. Yeah, so I think before before we go too far, you you brought up an important point, and I know this is like an insane question because there's like entire courses and dissertations and all the things on on Nubia. But could you give a you know super brief intro the two of you because you mentioned this was something that like hadn't really come up to you before. So like for people that are listening that maybe don't know anything about Nubia, could you give the like quick and dirty intro? Okay. So the name Nubia actually comes, really comes into play like in late antiquity and closer to medieval times. But what we refer to when we refer to Nubia, we're essentially referring to the Southern part of modern Egypt and the Northern part of modern day Sudan. And generally it's a catch-all term for the succession of cultures and communities that have lived there pretty much since the dawn of the Holocene. So you have the pre-dynastic cultures, and then you have the Neolithic cultures before that, and then you have after the pre-dynastic or concurrent, you have pre-Kerma, Kerma, and you have a series of states and political cultures that kind of rise and fall throughout the the centuries. And so when we talk about Nubiologists and studying Nubia, that really kind of includes people who study many of those cultures, because a lot of people don't study all of them all the way through. But it kind of is a catch-all term for people who study at least one or several of these successive cultures and political entities that have occupied that region of the middle and upper Nile Valley. Well said. Well, and also you have Nubian languages. So you have the Nubian people who still exist today. So there's also Nubian studies and journals like the Wato that talk about the issues of modern Nubians. And that was why we kind of tongue in cheek said, you know, Nubia, it's a real place because the word Nubia is sometimes mystified, right? It's sometimes kind of shrouded in mystery, And that's actually a little bit dangerous for people who speak Nubian languages and have Nubian identities today. So it's always important for us to acknowledge that even though this is something that kind of looms larger than life and it's something that fascinates people from ancient times, that the descendants of these various cultures still live in their homelands throughout the Nile Valley And, you know, they still, you know, face issues of dispossession and sometimes political marginalization, but they still are there. They are still there. (laughs) And no matter how fascinated people are with, you know, kind of the glory and the splendor of the ancient past, uh, we can never forget the living, breathing, you know, Nubian people that, you know, are real. And they're here. Mm -hmm. 
So that's that's a good point because I guess for me I was never particularly clear. But it, so it sounds like it's more you're Nubian if you're part of that geographic region as opposed to like one particular ethnic group or like how would you kind of define Nubians today? I guess. Well, modern Nubians are self-identified largely, you know, in their ethnic groups, but it's largely according to their languages. Okay. So the Nubian language family, I think, has about 13 extant dialects. Many of the dialects have either been endangered or died out. Wow. But really, people call themselves Nubian generally if they speak one of those 13 languages that are part of that larger Nubian language family. So the Nubian language, the, the, the language that goes by the term Nubian, there's four dialects in the Nile Valley. But there are other dialects that are spoken in Kordofan, Darfur, that are still a part of a larger Nubian language family. And I've interacted with Nubians from who speak those other languages who also call themselves Nubian. So there are also some people we know are descended from Nubians, but they no longer speak the language. And sometimes they are less inclined to refer to themselves as Nubians. So we respect what people call themselves, right? So okay. the ones who identify as Nubians, you know, we refer to them as Nubians. But there are other people like the Shagia who are most certainly Nubian descended, but they refer to themselves by their tribe name or by their ethnic name. And so that's how we refer to them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I know, again, like that's I'm sure you have whole intro courses that you teach on Nubia. We, we <laughs> so, do not. And we should. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, yes. So recommendation we're putting out into the world. <laughs> All right. Well, we are already at our first break point, but I'm super excited to come back and continue this discussion. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we're back from our break, and I I just want to dive right back into that conversation we were just having, and ask you know you you guys mentioned that there really isn't intro classes, for example, on Nubia. Why is it so overshadowed, you know, compared to Egypt? And what you know when we don't get that perspective of Nubia, like what are what are we missing? Well, I think the main problem or the main issue is that Nubian studies grew out of Egyptology. So when Egyptology first started as a discipline, people were fascinated with Egypt. But when they looked down to look at what was in Nubia, they just disregarded it as being a, a cheap copy of what was happening in Egypt. You know, they looked at the people depicted in you know, dark brown skin and, and equated that with the disrespect that they were showing people that looked like that at that time. So the, the racism kind of got overlaid on the historical aspect of it. So, you know, Egyptologists, you know, they just felt like, well, Nubia is this backwater. They were just trying to copy the Egyptians these cultures are not worth studying. So it wasn't until they started constructing the Aswan High Dam in the 70s. Well, it started in the late 60s. But when the UNESCO made the call, this international call for all of these archaeologists to come to help salvage these monuments that, that were in Nubia that were at risk of being flooded, you had these archaeologists that had no connection with Egyptology coming in. And they began to see Nubia, these different cultures that they were encountering in a different way. So they were bringing in that Egyptological bias. And you also had, you know, it's the 70s. So we've gone through the civil rights movement. So the younger archaeologists that were coming, were coming with a different mindset. And you can see that 
as you're reading some of the the reports, you know, they're they're coming with a more open mind. So they're looking at Nubia as these cultures that have their own cultural logic. And so I think that that's what started that change of looking at Nubia and Nubian cultures on their own terms. We're still in the process of pushing, looking at it, you know, in in different terms, but also looking at both the Nile Valley cultures as being part of Africa, because part of what happened, Egyptology was founded, was Egypt was taken out of Africa. And so when you look at the dynamism, you know, the origins, how people came to be in the Nile Valley, there is total disregard for what's going on around Egypt and Nubia, as if people were just there. And one of the things that I find fascinating over the past few years of my study and my thinking about it is looking at the migrations of people. So people have been migrating across the African landscape for millennia, starting with the the first people to actually be homo sapiens, you know, 300,000 years ago. People have been moving across the landscape and they've been bringing their ideas, their cultures. They've been meeting other people, forming different groupings of societies, different ideas are coming to, to, to into being. So we have to continue to look at these ancient cultures and not be so rigid about, you know, how they were founded. That the narrative of a foundation has to be re-examined, but re-examined looking at what's going on around the Nile Valley and looking at the, the, the climate, the environment. Things were changing, so people were moving. So those are some of the things that are coming to the fore now and really makes, you know, looking at Nubia and Egypt exciting at this point. And just to add to that, I mean, because that that is very important, the role of race in the early studies of Nubia really does have to be acknowledged, right? Because it was the politics of the early 20th century that set the tone for that. And it's also true that one, the academy really has not made space for Nubia because you have African studies, which is kind of born out of political science and has kind of a very modernist emphasis, right? And then you have Egyptology. And even amongst like Africanist archaeology, they always, not always, there is a tendency to kind of look at Nubia like, what are you doing here? You know what I'm saying? Mm. So there are these pockets or there are these kind of cliques within the academy. And sometimes it does feel like the study of Nubia doesn't fit cleanly into any of them. Mm. Early African-American thinkers were fascinated by Nubia. You know, Du Bois, all of these people were fascinated by Nubia. So this idea that Nubia is not important People might be ignorant, but I also kind of feel like sometimes people be playing in our faces. Mm-hmm. You know, Nubia's fly. Like, quit lying. <laughs> Stop lying. <laughs> you know, that's just my opinion. I think some folks be lying sometimes. Uh-huh. But, you, do but you know, I wanted to get back to to that, the, the disciplinary boundaries, because that is very, very true. You know, African studies, it's like, we don't deal with, with the ancient. But the question hey. is, why not? It's part of Africa. Mm-hmm. Why not? Mm-hmm. And then Egyptology does not deal with any other parts of Africa. Why not? You're in Africa. Does not that have an effect on what it is that you're studying? So it's, it's almost like these, these, these really rigid boundaries have kept, mm-hmm. you know, the study of, Nubia, as well as Egypt, in this in this place where it can't fully develop, it's malformed because it's not taking in all of the information that it needs. But a, another aspect of that 
is that, you know, Sheila brought up W.B. Du Bois, but we should bring up William Leo Hansberry because William Leo Hansberry was the nation's, he was the first Africanist. He was the first person Mm -hmm. in this country to study, to, to have a whole curriculum of African studies. And people don't know his name, mm-hmm. but he started that. He, he developed the whole curriculum in, and introduced it in January of 1923. And if you do the math, that was 100 years ago, mm-hmm. this year. His curriculum started with what he called the early stone tool users and goes, went all the way through to his modern time. So he understood. So African-American scholars who were relegated, you know, to HBCUs, they could not participate in the larger institutions. They had a different approach to ancient African studies that was holistic. And you get the disciplinary boundaries in the, 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 predominantly white institutions. And we have to ask the question, you know, if they had not sidelined people like W.B. Du Bois and William Leo Hansberry and others who were trying to to develop and who did develop curricula that, that looked at Africa over the long durée, if they had included them in their discussions, in their associations, in their organizations, you know, our understanding of ancient societies would be so much fuller and more complete than it is now. We're mm-hmm. only now getting to the point where we're understanding where we need to look more expansively and we need to break down boundaries and look. So when I, when I think about the, you know, Nubia, Egypt and start talking about the origins, you know, I talk about a Nile Valley continuum, you know, because people were living in the Nile Valley before there was the Nubia, Wawat, or Kush, before there was a Kemet, people were just living on the Nile Valley. They were moving, you know, north to south to north, the way the river flows, they were moving east to west. So if we just break down these boundaries, these false boundaries, we can really understand things a lot deeper and we have a, a lot richer understanding of what was going on in those ancient African societies. So, Deborah, you you mentioned William Leo Hansberry, and he is the namesake for for the society that you co-founded. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what that society does and why you chose him? Although I think based on what you just said, it's probably pretty obvious, but (laughs) to be the namesake. Yes. So there was a group of five of us and Shayla was one of them during the pandemic. So most of this comes out of the aftermath of the the killing of George Floyd, the pandemic, everybody's at home, we're on Zoom. So we're getting to see people and being able to to watch webinars that, you know, you normally wouldn't have time to watch. Mm -hmm. People are online doing things that they normally would do, you know, in their own institution, as opposed to it being something that's, that's, you know, streamed. So during this time, we were beginning to see, you know, that there are other people doing this work. But the, the roots of it really is, you know, one of the organizations that a few of us are, are a part of had not released a statement after the, the George Floyd killing and, you know, Black Lives Matters. And so one of the young ladies had written a letter, uh, she had emailed to ask, you know, if this organization was going to release some kind of statement. And uh, so we got together and we wrote an open letter and we, it, you know, had some kind of demands that, you know, included increasing diversity because there are only a handful of people that look like me and that look like Shayla. They're doing this work in, in the Nile Valley. And so we wanted to see what we could do to increase those numbers. So as we were seeing people on these different webinars and we're like, oh, get that person's email. Ooh, let's email them. 
So by the end, we had like over 20 people and we were having conversations about, you know, how do we move this work forward? Because the thing that, that everybody that we contacted, because I, I knew Shayla, I had gone to school with, with Solange Ashby. So we knew each other. Uh, we had met Salim Faraji going to the Nubian Studies Conference. But there was still just a very small number of us. You know, you could number us probably like on one hand. And so we're seeing these other people. And we draw them in and they're like so excited. Like, I thought I was the only one. I'm the only person in my department. I'm the only person in my area that's doing this work. And so we're bringing, the, bringing people together to create this, this organization, this fellowship of people that are, are studying this, this similar thing. But it was something more. There was a drive that we need to expose younger students to this. You know, like I said, I came through this, I came to this point from a route that's, that was winding. Like there was no straight route from me from high school starting undergrad to where I am now. I didn't know any black archaeologists. That's part of the reason why I wanted to study archaeology. I was like, I, I fascinated with National Geographic and all of the stuff that I see, you know, on television growing up, but I never saw anybody that looked like me. So I thought it would be a part of my own personal responsibility. And I think we all take it as a part of our personal responsibility to be visible, to show young people that this is, this is an opportunity. This is something that you can aspire to, because if you've never seen it, it's hard for you to imagine it. So we want to open the imaginations of young people, whether they are, you know, children or even in, in college, like I said, my university, I went to HBCU, we did not have anthropology courses. I could not have imagined being an archaeologist because that wasn't an option for me. So opening that up, and especially to students that don't have that option, those are the things that kind of drive us. And that's, you know, that William Leo Hansberry, his, his thing was that Black students in this country, and, and this is during the time of segregation, that they needed to know African history because African history was a part of their history. So he was totally invested. He invested his whole life doing this work. He has a relationship to Nubia because he f- heard about Professor Francis Llewell Griffith who was at, he was at Oxford, was going to launch an excavation at Kawa, which is one of the temples that I'm studying for my dissertation. This was his first excavation at that site. And he, I guess he had published it. I saw the, the ad. And so Professor Hansberry actually wanted to participate in that excavation. And so he asked the assistant curator, at the Museum of Fine Arts, because he was Harvard educated, he this so he wasn't uh, he wasn't a slouch. Professor Hansberry had gotten his bachelor's and his master's from Harvard in anthropology, and at a time when nobody was studying Africa, which is another significant point. So he asked Dallas Dunham, who was the assistant curator, if he felt that he sh- he could approach. Professor Griffith, Dr. Griffith, to ask him to go on the excavation. And he wrote, he wrote in the letter. And so Dallas Dunham responded to him and he gave him a lot of reasons. Well, you don't have any archaeological experience. But William Lil Hansberry was that person. Well, you tell me where I'm deficient and I will go rectify that deficiency. So he had taken classes at the Oral Institute of the University of Chicago in Egyptology. So then, but he gets down to the final reason. And his final reason is that, you know, he's a black man. And he says, you know, if, if it were me, if I was in charge of the excavation, I think long and hard before I would, you know, bring a Negro, you know, that would bring dishonor on the rest of the team. And the, the people 
would not respect, you know, you or respect us, which I find totally absurd after going to Sudan because the people were so happy to see somebody that looked like them participating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so aside from his, his work in African studies, that, that, that Nubian connection, he was just like the obvious choice. And Shayla has stories about William Leo Hansberry because he taught at Howard. I mean, not, she doesn't have direct stories. She didn't take classroom because he had already died, but she could tell you about the legacy of William Leo Hansberry at Howard. She's going to talk about the lab. Well, okay, I want to talk about the lab, but I also want to talk about the experience of being Black and digging in Sudan. One of the things that fascinates me, especially about that story, you know, saying that the expedition would lose prestige if there was the presence of an American Negro. And this is so ironic because my first time in Sudan, I went to the National Museum and I was just kind of puttering around while we were waiting to kind of get our paperwork together so we could go up to our site. And a school bus came. And there were a bunch of girls on the school bus. It was like a high school for girls. And they saw me and they took off from that bus and they surrounded me in that museum. And they said, are you Sudani? And I had to tell them, no, I'm Ricky, right? And they were only a little bit disappointed, but not that much. (laughs) (laughs) Because they knew I was an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. And that busload full of high school girls in cartoon were so excited to see a black woman archaeologist mm-hmm. that they ran from the bus into the museum. So you think about that. That that's the that's the legacy of William Leo Hansberry. And I I did my anthropological training in the Cobb Laboratory, which is named after one of Hansberry's students, William Montague Cobb. Mm-hmm. And he had quotes from Hansberry that were up, his teacher up in the lab that were essentially saying what Deb said, that, you know, the descendants of Africa could not know themselves until they actually understood the history of of Africa. And finally, just one thing, because I know that Deb won't mention it when we talk about this experience. When I got to Sudan and I mentioned Deb's name, (laughs) <laughs> One of our OGs, Bruce Williams, he was like, oh, Deborah Heard, the Belle of Karima. <laughs> so Karima is a town that is situated between several royal cemeteries. So if you hear about cemeteries like El Kuru and Jebel Barkle, and to Temple of Jebel Barkle. So Karima is kind of situated amongst a series of very important archaeological sites. And this town is a town full of people who know archaeology, who've worked on, you know, if you, there are certain towns in Sudan where everybody kind of is in on the archaeology of the region. And they never forgot Deborah Hurt. And so uh, <laughs> that is what Bruce Williams, he was just like, she had everybody going crazy. Therefore, <laughs> Karima. That's awesome. Well, well, you know, Jessica, it's one of those situations where you, in hindsight, realize the significance of being in a place. So, you know, when I was there, it wasn't until like I left. And I think maybe even after I came back the second time that I realized that the people in this village, in this area have not ever seen an African American in person. Mm-hmm. And she's part of the archeological team. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so again, going back to William Little Hansberry, you know, that excitement that I think is a form of pride because it's like that person looks like me. Yeah. We went to one of the workmen's houses the first time. And so the women, you know, go to one part, the men go to another and they send one of the younger women out to, you know, to entertain while you know, not to entertain, but, you know, to sit and talk while, you know, they prepare the food. And uh, so it was, I think, his his daughter-in-law. 
And she was a very, very dark, beautiful woman wrapped with, you know, this very colorful scarf around her. And so there was another woman that went with us, like, I'm the only black person. Okay. So, <laughs> so Lisa sits in between us because she could speak a little Arabic. I, I didn't know Arabic at the time. So she is just sitting there on the other side of Lisa and just smiling. And then all of a sudden she pulls her sleeve up, reaches across Lisa and puts her arm next to mine. And I say, yes, we're the same. <laughs> and then she, you know, and then like, Five minutes later, she does it again. And, and it's just like, she was just so excited. And I was like, you know, I would love to be able to, to know what she's thinking, mm-hmm. you know, to, to verbalize what this means to her to have a black woman doing this work. So, you know, representation is important, not just, you know, in the place, you know, academically, but it can be important for the place where you go, the place where you're doing the work. It can be very important for them too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to to to, to mention that because that was that's one of the things that one of the memories that I treasure most of my first trip to Sudan was that that whole interaction with that woman. It was just it was just remarkable. Oh, this is one of those moments where I'm sad that we don't have like the video going. Cause it's like, I'm just sitting here like smiling. That seems like, <laughs> but sadly I have to make us take a break, but <laughs> we will come back and we will keep talking about this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we're back. And we've talked a lot about Nubia in general. And I really want to... To, to get a little bit into your current work for both of you to make sure we cover that. So could each of you maybe talk about like the particular things that you're studying in Nubia? Well, I'll go first because I, I really want you to hear what Shayla's working on. I, I think that um, <laughs> I, I tell people that Shayla's work is going to transform how we view what's going on in the Nile Valley, not just in Nubia, but also in Egypt. No pressure, but, man. But, but, <laughs> we'll, get to that. we'll get to that. I mean, it's that missing piece that, you know, breaking down that boundary between African studies and Egyptology. And so, but we'll get to that. But so my never ending dissertation project, it seems, <laughs> I'm analyzing or comparing temples dedicated to the Egyptian god Amun, to the temples dedicated to the indigenous Nubian god Apetamak, who was a lion-headed god. Uh, So I'm looking at the iconography and the inscriptions. So the iconography, of course, is the, the drawings and the carvings. But what I'm looking for is what did it mean for the king or the queen, because we had uh, ruling queens. What did it mean for the ruler to be a good ruler? What were the responsibilities that they had to carry out to the gods as well as to the people? But also, what responsibilities were there for the royal family? So on the a lot of the temples that I'm, I'm looking at, we see not only the king or the queen, but we also see other people, other royal family members, particularly apprentices, participating. 
So those are some of the some of the things that I'm looking at for my dissertation. But outside of that, I am keenly interested in origins. So what are the origins of some of the ideas that we see in religious sphere, some of the origins of some of the deities that we see? And that is, I think, probably a lifelong project looking at origins. So that means not looking just statically in one place. Again, breaking down those boundaries, looking at people, how they were moving around the landscape, what was going on in that critical Holocene period. And and we, we keep mentioning the Holocene. So it was a period where the Sahara was actually green and lush. So there was a change in climate. So people were moving from the South. People were moving from the West. People were moving all over. And they were bringing different ideas about, you know, how they, different cultural ideas. So we see things start to emerge during the, the drying phase when, when the, the, Sahara, the Sahara started to dry up again and people start moving to permanent water sources. So people are moving into the Nile Valley and settling there. People are moving west. And I think that's something that we have to start looking at. It's like people are, are settling in, along in the Niger area, looking at the people that are creating these settlements around these permanent water sources But they would have gathered, some of these people would have gathered in the Sahara region, in the Sahel, and exchanged some cultural ideas. So just looking at how some of these things emerge and looking at connections across space and time are things that I'm interested in and doing. And and I'm still, you know, looking at some aspects of of the royal women, because that's been something that like I said, that was, that was my first, very first public lecture back in 2006 was about the, the Nubian queens. And so there's a lot of things that are still fascinating about not just the queens, but the queen mothers and the, the princess priestesses that I think we still have to unpack. And our colleague, uh, Solange Ashby, has been doing some of that work as well. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting work that's, that's being done. In, in Nubia. So, but I'll let Shayla talk about her groundbreaking future work. My goodness, Pam. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about breaking any ground. But, um, <laughs> so, I am zooarchaeologist. I'm interested in how people use animals to navigate their world. I mean, I work in the Nile Valley, I work in Nubia, but I also broadly study pastoralism in dry lands and the resilience that pastoralists have during climate change. So my present project, I mean, I just finished a book. I'm finishing up a book along with some colleagues about the history of cattle in Sudan. But my present project really looks at how we can measure social networks that were kind of maintained by cattle pastoralists. We kind of see a little bit about what this looks like in the present. But when we look at it in the past, we're looking at like a certain set of material measures like burial places, trade items. We can look at the animal bones that we find and we can study them isotopically. So we can look at their biochemistry to see where the animals were being taken. There's also uh, more information now about the, the types of hydrological networks and the extent of these hydrological networks that pastoralists would have traveled along in ancient times. So the idea is that we put all of these things together kind of in into one big conversation to see if we can measure what's happening in the social networks during environmental duress. And this is really starting around like 4,500 BC. And my, my big question is, do people cooperate or is there conflict or cooperation during the worst times when, you know, people, the climate is changing, the rain is gone. You know, I want to know how people work through that. And I'm interested in this because I think that how people work through the desiccation of the Sahara 
has a lot of implications for what people are capable of working through and surviving today. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of a interesting segue into one of my next questions, which was, you know, looking at Sudan today in 2023, because this is being recorded in 2023. Obviously, there's a lot happening there. There's there's the war in Sudan. And how is that affecting the the work that the two of you are, are trying to do and, and everyone at the, the Hansberry Society? Well, I will say that, you know, this is a big, this is a question I get a lot. But the interesting thing about being at, not even just being at Harvard. So during these salvage campaigns, during the, the, the building of the Aswan High Dam and other dam projects that required salvage archaeology, there is a lot of material that was excavated in the Nile Valley that has not been analyzed. It's been in storage in a variety of universities throughout the United States and Europe. Um, mm-hmm. I began my appointment in July. So in July, I started a fellowship appointment at Harvard. My assistant professor appointment technically starts next July or this coming up July. But At this university where I work, there are tons of materials from the Nile Valley that have not been analyzed. So even though we, of course, cannot go into the field, we still have an archaeological obligation to, we should really be looking at these legacy collections even before we plan research. Like these these collections should not be neglected. Mm -hmm. And so- On the flip side, even though we have tons of material to work with, the flip side of that is that I do worry about losing a generation of archaeologists in Sudan. Mm. While we're not there, that means that Sudanese students who are, you know, for a lot of the students, they're hunkered down. They're in their ancestral villages away from the fighting. Their educations have been disrupted. And so to me, that's the biggest irritation is not for myself, but it is, there was this movement that was gaining momentum for Sudanese people to take a much more active and central role in their cultural heritage. And this series of conflicts that has now culminated in this civil war, I think it really threatens the, the, it, it really threatens our progress in producing Sudanese archaeologists to kind of take the reins of this. And, and that's uh, something we're actively trying to strategize to, to, to work on, right? You know, we're actively trying to figure out how to not lose that next generation of Sudanese archaeologists. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and, and also I would suggest that your, your listeners go over to the Hansberry website because we have put up a statement about Sudan on our, on our website. For us, it's, it's more than just the archaeology and the work. It's the people. When you go and you spend time in these villages with these beautiful people inside and out, you just can't imagine the terror that they're being subjected to. And so for us, it's extremely saddening because we feel helpless to, to end this nightmare for the people that we know are just innocent and helpless to, to, to stop any of this. So it, it's, it's, for us, it's, it's deeper than just the work there's an emotional part of it that goes along with it. You know, being able to contact your colleagues to know that they're okay Mm -hmm. is, you know, something that we all, you know, we struggle with from time to time. It's like, I haven't heard from such so-and-so, you know, are they okay? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's something that's, that's distressing on so many levels other, you know, other than just, you know, we won't be in the field, you know, nobody will be able to Mm -hmm. go in the field, you know, the next year. You know, we also have to consider what happens in the aftermath. 
Mm-hmm. Not just and, and and with the cultural heritage, yes, but with the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's major infrastructure that has been destroyed. How is that going to be replaced? And, you know, I don't want anybody, any corporation or government trying to profit off of the hardship that these people have experienced. And it wasn't their fault. Nothing, nothing that, that happened was the will of these people. But they're suffering the loss. So just having, you know, how do we help them even with the aftermath is something mm-hmm. that we have to consider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, everything that Deb is saying is true. I, I pray that people keep their eyes on Sudan because I don't really trust anybody. Like, you know, like as far <laughs> <laughs> as, as, far as governments and the international community doing right by Sudan. I feel like they had the chance to do right by Sudan and they didn't. So Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know why I would expect it now, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can keep our eyes on Sudan and I hope that the international community demands better. But I feel like for me, I just want to build up those networks. And this is something that every person I know who works in Sudan has been working on. It's just trying to build networks made out of people, right? Because we know the corporations are going to do their thing. Mm-hmm. We know that, you know, the State Department is going to do their thing. And I'm talking about in the in the midst of rebuilding. Mm-hmm. You know, if in the midst of rebuilding, capital is going to capital. You know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Oh, let me. Okay, I said I was not gonna say nothing um, to get me fired. <laughs> um, look, the the best thing is to build relationships between people. We have to have direct relationships between people, so that when all that other stuff falls apart, it, it is the personal relationships that hold us together and allow us to move resources to wherever they need to go. And I'm gonna say that, and that's. Good. Um, that's innocuous. Mm-hmm. After Bashir was ousted, that year, I went to Sudan. I went into the grocery store in Khartoum so that, you know, we can get our little snacks and everything for going up to our field sites. And it was a stereotypical Sudanese grocery store with stereotypical Sudanese items. You know, I come back eight weeks later and the whole grocery store is full, like chock full of American products. It was like Kraft and Procter and Gamble threw up in there. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And so I was like, what is this? You know, like in the space of like, I was only in the field for like eight weeks. But when I came back, the largest grocery store in Khartoum was full of Doritos and, and everything you can think of. Wow. So for me, that gives me a heads up to what rebuilding, and I'm doing the sarcastic air quotes with my fingers, mm-hmm. that gives me a heads up about what rebuilding is going to look like. Rebuilding is going to look like Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson. Like that's what mm-hmm. it's going to So knowing that, knowing that that's just how it is, Rebuild is going to look like McDonald's everywhere, right? <laughs> so, so I am with the Sudanese people. I want to be with them in the rebuilding, but we also have to make sure, like Deb said, that the rebuilding is about people mm-hmm. and not Big Macs and Coke. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't think I said anything to get me put on the list, but um, <laughs> well, you I'm know, just going to... It's not even just the Big Macs and the Cokes. What's even more, I think, insidious is the like 99 year leases, mm, agricultural, yeah. you know, land. That's what I don't want to see more of because it already exists. But I don't want them basically taking taking more land, whether it's a government or it's a corporation. And so 
I think the thing is to foreground Nubian voices for, excuse me, foreground Sudanese voices because Nubians are one group in Sudan. Mm-hmm. 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 And so that's the principle has to guide us. Right. You know, the, the, the principle has to be that we do what we can to keep Sudanese voices front and center, that we listen to them, that we believe them, and that we absolutely follow their lead in in rebuilding their future. And, and that's a principle I can stand on like 10 toes down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that that ties into the the last question that I had for the two of you, which is basically, where do you want to to see this work go in the future? I want to replace myself with a Sudanese archaeologist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, and so I I have obligations. My my personal obligations are to two communities. I'm obligated to my community, the African American community. I'm obligated to the Nubian community, the Nubian communities in the towns where I work. And so for me, I would love to build pathways. And one of the concerns is, A, making this work accessible for people who look like me, both in the United States and across the continent. But two, building pathways so that Sudanese people don't become bystanders in their own history. Mm-hmm. Because right now, the pathways that exist were few and far between. They weren't, they were perilous to begin with. And now those pathways have been like destroyed temporarily. So I'm working with organizations like Scholar Rescue, like AMSARC, American uh, Sudanese Archaeological Research Center. There are several organizations that are working to try to keep those pathways open. But I just essentially want the the opportunity to train students who, because one of the things we haven't mentioned is that Nile Valley excavations are expensive. It's expensive to participate in them. And sometimes it's hard to even get placed on a project without having a, a really, without being tapped into elite networks. So part of what we're trying to do with William Leo Hansberry is to make sure that people are not excluded from this work because they don't have the money or because they don't have like some sort of elite highfalutin network where they have somebody who can put them on. Mm. I want to open those doors up so that other deserving students can participate. Mm -hmm. And and that was exactly what I was going to say. So echoing what, what Shayla's saying, just that access, we have students that are that have an interest, but the financial part of it is just overwhelming. So being able to, to fund students so that they can go, so that they can do their research, but also seeing the possibilities for other types of research. So, you know, having students in conservation or, you know, going into geology, all of those things are important for archaeological excavation, but also, you know, the work that gets done once you're back, you know, in the States or in the lab. So opening, opening those doors and making it so that like Shayla was saying, that it's not just, you know, certain departments have certain have the access to sites. And if you're not a part of that department or if you're not a part of that university, then you're basically locked out. We have students that are, are outside of those networks. So how do they get in? So that's what we're we're asking for. That's what we're pushing for, just to have those those opportunities and the, the funding that goes along so that they can take advantage of those, those opportunities. Well, I, I really appreciate the two of you coming on and, and sharing everything today. And I mean, that's a, that's an amazing vision that the two of you shared. So I hope that the, the field does head that way. And yeah, just again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And I know I learned a lot today, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I know this is outside of your, your, your normal. So we appreciate the opportunity to even 
bring Nubia into this setting. I mean, it's always amazing, though. Like, you hit on so many of the same themes that come up and, you know, in slightly different ways that really, like, make you think about it. So I think it's perfect. Right. I mean, and and these are some of the discussions we were having, you know, in our archaeology section, Mm -hmm. just more in general, like, if we want to talk about increasing diversity, what does that mean and what does that look like? It Mm -hmm. can't be just, oh, we're going to open, you know, spaces on teams you have to understand that, you know, the students that you're trying to attract, you know, they have different needs. So a student that's working class, mm-hmm. which, you know, a lot of these students will be, and it, and it doesn't even have to be a racial thing. White working class students have those same issues too, right. you know, so that funding is a critical key piece that needs to be addressed. So, uh, yeah, so a lot of those issues don't just affect Nubian archaeology, but but it's where we work. So mm-hmm. so we want to make sure that we have those resources available, you know, for our students so that we can continue to to move forward in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if anybody, you know, has lots of cash laying around and wants to make a, a donation to the Hansberry Society. Exactly. We want to be able to field our own, uh, our own excavation team. So, yes. yes. <laughs> awesome. Right. I love it. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.